as a Christian man trying to live a Christian life, you want to live out your faith in several arenas, your work, your church, your friends, your personal life, and your family. Not every one of these arenas, however, is created equal. Your personal life and your family life are most important. If you failed in either of these, the consequences would be huge. That would affect not only yourself, but also many others. How can you truly be ready to be the worldview leader in your personal life and in your family? The answer is that you have to be in Scripture. In Psalm 119, verse 105, King David called God's word, quote, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, end quote. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul taught that, quote, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, end quote. In order to lead your family well, in order to lead yourself well, you need to know your Bible. But how should you study the Bible? What's the best way to do that? That is what we're talking about today. There are many methods out there, but in this episode, you're going to learn a five-step method for studying the Bible that will help you get the most out of every single passage that you study. And this method is going to draw on principles that are found in Scripture that are literally as old as Scripture itself. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedeckes. I'm a former pastor and missionary, and now I'm the executive director of the Think Institute. I used to defend my faith the completely wrong way until God changed my attitude and my approach. And now I help believers to talk about their faith with confidence and to pass it on to the younger generation and to answer the world's questions from the Bible. So what is the best method for studying scripture? Well, today's episode is going to get you to the point where you can open up any passage of scripture and study it for all it's worth. And you're going to be able to do this in your personal devotions, as well as when you lead family worship, or just simply have an impromptu discussion about the Bible with your kids or your wife. You may already have a great method that you have been using for years, and maybe you're trying to, you're looking into something new, or you might be new to studying the Bible and you're looking for a way that you can use to sink your teeth in and to understand what God is saying to you in his word and what he wants you to do as a result, how to put it into action. Or maybe you have a method for studying the Bible on your own, but you need a good way of leading your family. You need a good system for leading your family in scripture. This episode is for you. Now, in this episode, you're going to learn four things. How to make initial observations about a text of scripture five steps to studying any passage from the Bible, two resources to help you answer questions that come up from your Bible study for further knowledge, and where to find a free resource to help you study the Bible using this method. Now, if you want to take your progress of becoming the worldview leader that your family and church need to the next level, you need to know about our online community. This is the group where you can discuss and learn from over 700 others who are on the same journey that you're on. Every day, we're finding answers to important questions and sharing resources that will help you do what God has called you uniquely to do, to articulate and defend the truth of the Christian worldview, and to answer those questions that 
always come up when you share your faith. I'll tell you how to get access to that group after the show. All right, so now what I want to share with you today is a method that I developed for studying scripture. It's called the THINK method, T-H-I-N-K. Yes, that is an acronym. And yes, it also happens to be the name of our organization, the THINK Institute. Now, in the THINK Institute, the word THINK is not an acronym. But in this Bible study method, it is an acronym, and each of the letters represent something. So I'm going to share with you what each of the letters represent, and then we're going to work our way through the method, and then we're actually going to try this out on a passage of Scripture. Now, this passage was chosen by the members of the Think Squad, our online Facebook community. So we're going to work our way through that passage. We'll do it together, and we don't have a lot of time to do it, so hang with me, and I'll give you a second right now. Go ahead and grab your Bible because you're going to need it. Okay. Now, let me give you a link as well, because this is the method. This is where to find it. If you go to thethink.institute slash thinkmethod, all one word, you will find a link to a full guide. Or you'll find the full guide. It's all right there. Now, at the top of this page, you'll see two buttons. One says, get the quick guide Bible insert. And that's printable for you. And then you can download the full guide. That's the second button, which is a PDF for you to download. Those are free resources. I pray that they are helpful. I use these in my own personal Bible study. I use them in my men's Bible study on Thursday mornings. My wife has used this. I've taught online courses with this. This is a method that works. And as you're going to see, it's actually a method that is drawn directly from Scripture, directly from God's Word. I'm going to walk you through the think method. And if you open up the website, you're going to see some initial notes. I just want to cut right to the most important part, which is this. When you open up your Bible, the very next thing that you should do is to start with prayer. Why start with prayer? Because we are so easily distracted and we are so depraved and fallen that unless the Lord helps us, we really can have no hope of understanding his word. This is not something we can do in the flesh. We need God's help. So before you start studying, you might pray something like this. Lord, open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. That's Psalm 119, verse 18. Then what you're going to do, the very next thing, is you're going to start making your initial observations. How do you do this? Start by reading the passage all the way through one time. And then you're going to make notes of the following elements. The author, so who wrote it, the original audience, who are they writing to, the genre of the passage. Is this a historical passage? Is it an epistle? Is it apocalyptic? Is it a gospel? Is it prophetic? The genre is going to help you interpret what is written. Letters are interpreted differently from apocalyptic, for example. Then you're going to look, do what you can to find out the estimated date of writing. What was going on in history at that time? Look at the historical setting. Also take note of the people that are mentioned. Who is the author writing to? Who are some of the people that he's talking about? Who are some of the people that are speaking? What are the major events that take place in the passage? But then also, if you look at the textual context, Look around and see, well, what happened before this? What happened after? But definitely in the text itself, ask yourself, what are some of the major events that take place? Also take note of important ideas discussed. 
Are there any problems that are introduced? Are there any sins that are committed or warned about or condemned? And then again, you're going to look in the scriptural context and ask yourself, what was written before this and what's written after this? So for example, if you're looking in the gospels and you're reading the passage about 12-year-old Jesus being in the temple, ask yourself, what happened before this? There was the virgin birth, there, there was the genealogies, and there was the visit of the Magi and the visit of, uh, the visit of the shepherds. Okay, and what's going to happen after that? You're going to look, you're going to flip forward a little bit and say, okay, where is this text situated within the larger context? Something else you're going to look at is parallels to today. This is going to come in really handy when you're looking at application. Who are some characters we see reflected today? What are some situations that we we might find ourselves in today, or at least analogous situations. Ask yourself this too. What are some similar passages to this? Now with the gospels, that's really easy. There's a lot of parallel passages, but there's going to be parallels. Uh, I'll give you an example. In Genesis 1.1, we find the creation of the world. You see something very similar in John 1.1. Genesis 1 and John 1 are very similar passages. That's done intentionally. And noticing things like that are going to is going to help you better interpret scripture. Three more things to look at. Gospel pointers, does this point forward to Christ or back to Christ? Or does it in some way reference what Jesus Christ is going to do? You're also going to look at or ask yourself this, why do you think God included this passage in the Bible? Because all scripture is God-breathed. It's there because God wanted it there. And then finally, why do you think God wanted you to read this passage today? That's a kind of a cool question to think about, isn't it? Because we believe that God is totally sovereign. That means that he had you read that passage at the exact right time. And he must have a reason for it. So why do you think God wanted you to read this passage today? Okay, good. Now, if you're still with me, it is time to think through the passage. We're going to dig in and we're going to mine the text for gold. The think method consists of five steps. Teaching, heart, illumination, now what, and knowledge needed. Or if you're keeping score at home, that's T-H-I-N and K, spelling the acronym THINK. Now, let's walk through each of these steps in greater detail. And actually, what we're going to do is we're going to open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. I'm going to pour myself some tea, and I'm going to give you a chance to pull that up. Romans 1. 18 through 21. Go ahead. All right. Have you got it? If you have Romans 1, 18 through 21, then uh, let's go ahead and walk our way through it. Now, I'm going to do something a little strange. I am going to pull up the Greek. I'm actually going to walk you through this in the Greek. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I did study Greek in seminary. And I think it might be helpful to see the passage in the original Greek, at least the first couple of verses. Okay, so let's see if I can get that. Here we go. All right, we're going to walk through this passage in the original Greek, and I'm going to hopefully not mangle my translation too much. But thankfully, there's all kinds of helps here, so I'm not going to I'm not going to do all the labor here. I'm going to allow this website to help me out. Now, by the way, if you're if you're doing this at home. There's a website that I always go to for the Greek translation. It's laparola.net slash greco, 
L-A-P-A-R-O-L-A.net slash G-R-E-C-O. Okay, so I'm somewhat familiar with this passage, pretty familiar, I guess you could say. And so um, translation is not going to be too terrible working through this, but if I make any mistakes, uh, bear with me and um, hey, pray for me. How about that? Okay, the, it, it starts off with apocalyptetai. Sorry, I don't normally pronounce them. I normally just read them. Apocalyptetai gar orge theu ap urano, urano, excuse me, epipasan asabian sebeon kai adikian anthropon ton tain alethian alethian and adikia katekanton. Okay. What in the world does that mean? That's just verse 18. And after reading that in real time, I did not practice this beforehand. I'm going to go ahead and switch over to an English translation right after this verse. Okay, so you will not have to hear me mangle the beautiful Greek language like that anymore. All right, first word. Um, Apocalyptetai. What does that mean? It means to be revealed. So uh, the first little phrase here, the first clause is, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who the truth in unrighteousness suppress or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's verse 18. So right away, we're making some observations and we're seeing there's sin, there is... um, uh, we know Paul is writing. We know this is an epistle. Uh, we know that um, it's going to be addressing certain sins. There's a problem. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, which from God's perspective is not a problem, but from the perspective of sinners, you better believe it's a problem. But let's go ahead and I'm actually going to pull down the Greek here and I'm going to pull up the English. Does that sound good? I think that sounds good. All right. So let's share my English translation. Hey, it was worth a shot. <laughs> it was worth a shot. Trying the Greek. All right, we're going to go to Romans 1, 18 to 21, and let's get our trusty English Standard Bible, English Standard Version. Here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Does that sound kind of like what I said? It sounds kind of like it, right? Not not word perfect, but pretty close. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let's start with our initial observations. The author, who's that? Paul. Who's the original audience? Jewish and Gentile Christians. If you go back to to Romans chapter one, you'll see that. What about the genre of the passage? It's an epistle. Estimated date of writing? That's a good question. I don't know that off the top of my head. I want to say 60s. If you know differently, let me know. I actually don't know. Historical setting. 
Uh, we're, we're at a period in time when Jews and Gentiles are learning to live together in the church. And actually, uh, the Jewish people were being persecuted, but the church is on the verge of being persecuted as well. And uh, really, Jew and Gentile have never, have never had to coexist in quite this way before. In the old Jewish system, Gentiles would just become Jewish. In the new system, in the church, uh, Jews don't have to stop being Jewish, but Gentiles don't have to stop being Gentile either. And so what happens? You got to learn how to coexist. So that's a major historical setting. Who are the people mentioned? Well, people, men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's you and me. That's, well, or is it you and me? Well, we'll talk about that as we go. Major events that take place. The wrath of God is being revealed. Men are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What are the important ideas being discussed? Man is suppressing the truth. God is revealing his wrath. Uh, God's invisible attributes are being seen, having been revealed through the things that are made. There's a lot of important ideas here, isn't there? Um, are there any similar passages to this? Sure, I bet if you were to think about it, what are some similar passages? Perhaps John 1, the light was in the world and the, the world did not recognize him or did not understand him. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome or comprehended it. What about, are there any problems introduced? Yes, we talked about that. Sins committed. Yeah. People are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's a major sin. Scriptural context, what's written before this and what's written after. Now, immediately before this, we have Paul in Romans 1.16 saying, saying that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And almost immediately after that, we find this passage. Wow, that is very significant. Paul's just given us the importance of the gospel, and now he's saying, now here's why you need it. Woo, we're going to get into that more. That's good. That's really good. Parallels to today. My friends, are people suppressing the truth and unrighteousness today? Absolutely. Matter of fact, I'd be willing to bet you've done that even today. I bet I've done that even today if we really search our hearts. Um, gospel pointers, does this point to Jesus? I think so. We just talked about the gospel being the power of God, and now we're talking about men suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I can tell you this, this sets up the need for a savior, doesn't it? Big time. Why do you think God included this passage in the Bible? For me personally, as a Christian apologist, I think he included it so that I could have a clearer understanding about apologetics and what my unbelieving opponent is actually doing. Of course, there's many, many more reasons why God included this in the passage in, in scripture. I mean, it's true. That's one. Two, it really sets up the need for the gospel. Between this chapter and all the way down to Romans 8. Man, you're really getting set up for your need for the gospel. And then uh, in 8 through 16, 9 through 16, you're going to see the implications of that. But God was very wise, understatement of the year, for including this passage in the Bible. And what do I think God wanted me to read this today? Well, you might have a different answer, but for me, it's just a good reminder that the person that I'm speaking with, the unbeliever, the non-Christian, is culpably ignorant of God. What I mean by that is the person knows God, but is suppressing the truth and is therefore without excuse. But it's also a good reminder of the moral implications of unbelief. 
And this is actually very poignant to me right now because I'm reading through a book called The Four Horsemen, which is a encapsulation of a discussion between four famous atheists that happened 15 years ago. It actually, this conversation sparked the whole new atheism movement. And I'm reading this book and it is so easy for me and I am so prone to scoff while I read it. But reading this passage in Romans reminds me that unbelief is nothing to unbelief is nothing to take lightly. And unbelief is nothing unbelief and the state of the unbeliever is pitiable. And I mean that in the technical sense of the word. We ought to have pity on unbelievers because they're in a sad state. They're in the exact state that but for the grace of God, you and I would still be in, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so there's our passage. We made our initial observations. Now it's time to think through the passage. So maybe you've got the other guide still pulled up, but I'm going to walk you through these steps, and we'll, we'll just tackle the passage together. Let's look first at teaching. Okay, what is this passage teaching? Now here, this is where we're trying to understand the big idea of the passage, the main point of the passage. So let's ask ourselves several questions. What does this passage teach about God? And that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or his attributes, his authority, his control, his presence in the world, or with God's people? What does this passage teach us about the world, how things ought to be, how things are, how things could be? Or what does the passage teach about mankind, the human condition, our needs, our potential, our deeds, etc.? What does this passage teach you about yourself? Are there any generalities that you fit into? Is there a specific element of your experience that's being addressed here? Let's go ahead and dive in. What does this passage teach about God? Right away in verse 18, we see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And what does that mean about God? What does that teach us about God? It teaches us that God is wrathful. A lot of people don't like to think about that. Quite honestly, I don't like to think about the wrath of God, especially when I think about the fact that I deserve it. But God's wrath is deserved, it is righteous, and it is real. And it's revealed from heaven. What else do we learn about God? We learn that God is there and that his existence is obvious. That's huge, isn't it? So what does this passage teach us about the world then? It teaches us that the world is the kind of place where what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown us his attributes. And I love what this says about God's invisible attributes having been clearly perceived. Isn't that an amazing idea? There is invisible attributes, but they've been clearly perceived. Tell that to an atheist and see the kind of reaction you get. I've gotten that, I've gotten a very shocked reaction when I've told an atheist that God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived. And it's true. God reveals what he is like in nature, his goodness, his intricate ability to design, his righteousness, his moral uprightness, his kindness. What does this passage teach about mankind and the human condition? It teaches that we suppress the truth, doesn't it? And it also teaches that we are without excuse. So if you've ever engaged in apologetics, if you've had to defend your faith, you might have been told, if God is real, why doesn't he make himself more clear, more apparent to me? 
Well, this passage actually puts that objection to rest. It says they are without excuse. Although they knew God, their problem was not intellectual, it was moral, because they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's a lot in this passage. Let's get down to the main teaching. What is the big idea of the passage? And here's how we can sort of encapsulate the big idea. In a perfect world, what does this passage say we ought to believe or value or do? And I'm working through this in real time with you. We might say that the big idea of Romans 1, let's see, if we were to, I didn't map this out grammatically, but we might just say, let's see. How about this? Because I'm looking at the structure of the passage and everything that we've just talked about. And it says, the wrath of God is revealed. What can be known about God? There's a for at the beginning of each of these clauses. For the wrath of God. For what can be known. For his invisible attributes, etc., etc. And it all leads up to, in verse 20, so they are without excuse. So I think what I'm going to say for the big idea here is that men have no excuse for not acknowledging God. Now you can put that in your own words. Maybe you like that. Maybe you, you've got a different takeaway here or a different big idea. There is only one true big idea of the passage, if you will, but it's going to be something along those lines. God's wrath is being revealed. I actually think that that actually ties up with the previous verse, verse 17, because there's a four at the beginning of it. So I do think that the big idea here comes in verse 20. So they are without excuse. So men have no excuse for not acknowledging God. Or you might say, because God has revealed himself, men are without excuse. I actually like that. Let's go with that. Because God has revealed himself, men are without excuse. I think that's pretty good. Men have no excuse. I'm literally working through this in real time along with you. Okay, there's the T. There's our T, our teaching. Because, because um, God has revealed himself, men are without excuse. All right, so far so good. Now let's go to H. Now H is the heart condition. It's when you get God's diagnosis of the human condition. So how does this passage confront us in our sin? How does it confront society's values? What society says is important or your own values, the things that you take seriously and the ideas that you love or your cultural pursuits or our cultural pursuits. What do we chase after? What do we indulge in? Or our desires for comfort, gratification, stimulation, satisfaction, or our pride, including our ambition, our, our glory, our wanting to be viewed as a good person or great or important. How does it confront our fears of death, discomfort, failure, rejection, mistreatment, or missing out, FOMO? How have you and others specifically fallen short and failed to live up to this exact teaching? How does this passage confront the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life? That's 1 John 2.16. All right, now, I'm going to tell you this. This, for me, how does this passage confront me as a Christian apologist? I'll tell you right now. This passage says that men are without excuse for knowing God, for not knowing God. 
not acknowledging him. Now, if I'm going to really follow this passage, I am going to interact with non-Christians as if this passage is true, because it is. But all too often, I have a desire, and this is still with me today. I'm still learning. I have a desire to be seen as impressive or intellectual or intelligent. And so what do I do? I soften the truth of the gospel. I will soften the truth and the reality that that God's existence is, is plain and obvious in the things that have been made. And I will do my best to pander or to even patronize the unbeliever, which is not honoring to him. It's not honoring to my God. And it's not uh, really reflective of what I actually believe. So that's one way that it confronts my sin. I think another way that it confronts sin in general is just our desire to have an excuse. I didn't know. You can't blame me. It's not my fault. You know, these are excuses that kids make, but we make the exact same excuses as adults, don't we? We make the exact same excuses. In reality, all men know God, and we know what God requires of us, but we fail to do it. So this passage majorly confronts sin. It confronts sin out there, and it confronts sin in my own heart, which is what Scripture does. All right, so it confronts sinful uh, suppression of the truth, and it also confronts sinful pride on the part of the Christian wanting to be seen as reasonable and well-adjusted and uh, winsome and everything else. Nothing wrong with being winsome, but there is a problem when you start watering down God's word in order to be winsome. Okay, now the next letter, if you're following along, is I, which stands for illumination. And there is no light, no illumination that shines brighter than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now we're going to see by the light of the gospel. The gospel is the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, was buried, and was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 9. How does this passage reflect or connect with that good news? So think about this. We've got this tension between the big idea, men have no excuse, and the heart condition. We want to have an excuse. <laughs> we want to imagine that we have an excuse. How do we resolve that tension? As a Christian, how many times have you acted as if this passage wasn't true? Well, how are you going to get that stain off of your record? How am I? This is where Jesus comes in. Now, Jesus is all over this passage. But how has Jesus succeeded where we failed? How does Christ's atoning death on the cross solve our sinful heart condition? How does his resurrection set us free? And how does the gospel, how does the gospel fix the problem that this passage has diagnosed in our heart? How is the truth of the gospel a better story than the one that is told by our culture? And how does the Lord Jesus meet our needs, including our need to obey God? How is Jesus greater and better than everything else we desire? I'll tell you this. For me, my desire to be intellectual, to be seen as intellectual, nothing wrong with wanting to be intellectual, but wanting to be perceived as this uh, great and towering intellect uh, at the expense of fidelity to Scripture in my flesh, you see. How is that done away with? It's done away by Jesus Christ dying for that sin on the cross. 
What about the sin of humanity who rejects God and suppresses the truth and unrighteousness? How is that done away with? By the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ died for men and women who had been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this passage is screaming our need for a Savior, and that is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. So at this point, we've uncovered how the gospel illuminates the passage. What shall we say? We'll say Jesus died for us while we were ignoring him. I think that about summarizes what we've talked about. If you've got a different application or a different way you'd word that, totally fine. Okay, now at this point, you've uncovered how the gospel illuminates the passage, so now what? Literally, how are we going to put this into action? This is the N. Now what? In light of what you've just studied, how should you respond? What does God want you to do now? Think critically about how you can apply what you've learned in your family, your church, your small group, work, social life, personal life, and local area. Who else needs to know about this? When will you tell him or her? Now, for me, it's kind of easy because I teach apologetics. I'm going to have conversations about this stuff on Wednesday with my apologetics students. For you, it's got to be somebody, if you're not an apologetics teacher, it's got to be in your own context. How will you apply this truth in the next conversation you have with a coworker, in the next conversation you have with your kids? Do you, do you see what we're doing? Now, as you're leading your family through this Bible study, you're going to be contextualizing this for your kids and for your wife. So you're going to, you're going to ask your kids, you're going to say, okay, little Johnny, whoever, little Mary, where are you going to live this out? When are you going to, when are you going to apply this to your life and to the conversations that you have? And you're going to help them walk through this, walk through the real world application of this passage. All right. So that's the now what? And now we come to the K. What is the K? The K is knowledge needed. Knowledge needed. After we're done reading the passage, studying the passage, we've got our T, our H, our I, we've got our N. The knowledge needed is maybe the most, I'm not going to say it's the most exciting part, but it's really cool. Because this is where your mind gets opened up to a whole world of theological and worldview and practical knowledge that's out there. Why do I say that? Because there are going to be unanswered questions, more often than not, in every passage that you read. And Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. When you open up God's Word and you begin to study it, it is going to open up a field of knowledge for you that you now get to go out and explore and enjoy exploring and discover God's truth in the world and in his word. So for me, let me tell you a question that I currently have about this text. I'm not making this up. This is a real question that I have. Some of you don't have this question. Here's the question. Is this condition of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, is it a universalized condition? Is it universal? Is this passage literally speaking about every human being except for Jesus who has ever lived 
Or are there exceptions to this rule? Is he speaking only about the Gentile world? I don't think so. Is he speaking only about people who have the cognitive capacity to understand truth? Or even for like the mentally handicapped, would they be lumped in with this as well? And to what extent? So that's a pat, that's a question that I have. If you have an answer to that question and you want to share it, by all means, get in touch with me. You can go to thethink.institute slash contact. Let me know your thoughts. But maybe you're going to have another unanswered question. That's perfectly fine. Whatever your unanswered question is, let that spur on your curiosity and let the fear of the Lord become for you the beginning of wisdom. Okay, so we've worked through T H I N and K. And we worked through this passage together. That's pretty cool. And now you know how to make initial observations about a text of scripture. We looked at how to read through the passage and note the author and the audience and the genre, various other details that are relevant to the text. We, um, uh, I want to just emphasize here, you want to get down as much as you can. The more info you can gather at the beginning, the deeper you'll be able to go in your study. We also talked about the five steps to studying any passage from the Bible, teaching, heart, illumination, now what, and knowledge needed. And of course, those spell out the acronym THINK. That's why this is called the THINK method. And we talked about how the first four, actually, we didn't talk about this, the first four actually come from Scripture itself. Did you know that? See in your mind, see if you can think of a passage that directly maps onto teaching, heart, illumination, and now what? How about 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Apostle Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, that one's easy, rebuke, calling out the heart condition, teaching, rebuke, instruction, uh, which corresponds to the eye of illumination. Okay, Jesus is instructing us. The gospel is bringing us around and solving our sin problem. And then training in righteousness, which is the now what? It's how we go out and live a righteous life for Jesus Christ. So we talked about those steps, how they come from Scripture. Now let me give you two resources that will help you answer questions that come up from your Bible study. And I've actually posted these in the show notes for this episode. So you can li literally look below this episode and you'll see them. When you want to learn more about a passage, you can look up commentaries at biblehub.com, sorry, dot, oh, I better double check that. Yes, biblehub.com. For some reason, I was thinking that sounds like it ought to be a .org, but it's not. But then um, at biblehub.com, you can search for, I don't know, a couple of dozen very old commentaries. Now, these are commentaries that go back towards the times of the Reformation and uh, men like John Gill and Matthew Henry and uh, John Calvin, you can read those commentaries and you can gain insight into the background of the passage. One that I really enjoy is VWS, Vincent Word Study, Word Studies. Now, I don't always agree with Vincent's conclusions, but man, the insight that you get into a passage as he is breaking down the, the Greek and the context it's really, really good. So that's all at biblehub.com. And then you can also, one more resource, search the epic footnotes of the Net Bible. 
That's the New English Translation, N-E-T. You can get that at Bible.org, or if you use the Version app, you can read all those footnotes if you just switch your translation to the Net Bible. It's not my go-to translation, but it is when I really want to look into the deep context. Last night I was studying Deuteronomy, and it was giving me these, these insights that I recognized from when I interviewed Michael Heiser a couple of years ago. And these guys who write these footnotes, they really go deep. It's really thorough. It's incredible. So Bible Hub, Net Bible, check them out. That's going to help you with your K, your knowledge needed as you study scripture and as you uh, take your knowledge further. And now if you want this think method of biblical study, you can go to thethink.institute slash think method. And while you're there, you can get a, a PDF, the full guide PDF, or you can get a little Bible card, a printable Bible card, which if you've seen me speak recently at a live event, I've been handing these out. But let me see if I can get you a picture if you're watching live. Let me see if I can get you a picture here of what that looks like. All right. It's at the top of the Think Method of Biblical Study page. You can get the full guide PDF, or here we go, the Think Method Bible card. You could print this out, put it right in your Bible. Now, do you want to grow as the worldview leader that your family and church need? Join our free community of over 700 others who are getting equipped to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Join the Think Squad. To get access to the group, all you have to do is open up Facebook and search for Think Squad. That's T H I N K S Q U A D. Answer the short membership questions. That's all it takes to get you in. And I've been really encouraged to know how much the Think Squad is actually impacting people. There are guys that are in there that are constantly inviting others to join, letting me know, hey, thank you for this group. Guys, I got to tell you, this is just God's grace as to how it's grown and how God has used it. But we got resources in there, amazing discussion. I ask questions, other people ask questions. You can just jump in and begin wading into expanding your theological knowledge and helping you get equipped to become the worldview leader that your family and church need. So thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. Thank you to Brian Kirchin, who gave me the green screen that is behind me right now, as well as some other lights and some other things I'm going to be using in studio very soon. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes, and is a production of the Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message, and we are based by God's grace.